Hi, everyone. It's Wednesday, October 4th. Thanks for joining Season 1 of Radio Free XP. Today, I'm joined by Dwayne Ford. Dwayne, give us a quick summary of what we're going to talk about. Um, I'd love to take people through my developer journey. Um, you know, after spending 20 years in uh, writing code, um, I've had a good amount of time not pairing and pairing. Um, I'd love to tell people how uh, the shift in the mindset has led us to create some industry changing software, um, get some really good outcomes in terms of companies and business, um, and then tell people a little bit about the new thing I'm doing. All right, Dwayne. Well, let, let's get on the pairing journey. You, know, you, you said at the top you spent a lot of time solo. So you know, tell us a little bit about your solo career and how did you discover pairing? Yeah, I um, had a non-traditional way um, of getting into the engineering scene. Um, I kind of just picked up a C++ book in high school um, and just essentially just started doing it. Um, I always had a, a lot of empathy for users because my initial users were uh, actually my parents. Um, they had a their own business. They had a lot of logistical pain and uh, my mom was using a lot of spreadsheets. Um, I picked up C++. I quickly learned uh, PHP and told them I could solve some of their problems and um, I kind of never just stopped doing that. Um, but back in those days, uh, you know, learning coding was a lot of, you know, IRC, reading books, uh, kind of just trial and error. Um, it was a very slow learning process because uh, you're kind of on your own. And there was like this text community, but that you can kind of ask for questions, but they'd never be in the same context and the same mind space solving the same problem with you. Um, it wasn't until I joined Extreme Labs um, and that's a story in itself because I always say they, they kind of tricked me into a job. Um, but they, they tricked me essentially with the uh, with pairing. Um, I didn't want a job at the time. They told me just to come in anyways. And when I saw the energy around people pairing um, and also other uh, skilled people just working together so closely, um, it was almost impossible for me to resist, especially at that stage of my career where I was just like so hungry for just learning more and observing more and uh, working with very cool clients. So, All right. And so what was that? One of the things that I really want to articulate for anyone who might want to listen is what was it like to go from solo to pairing? What was that first four weeks like? Um, it felt like what I would have learned on my own in like six months to a year, I was learning like every week. <laughs> like it was such like an up ramp of just like, um, hey, to do this thing on AWS, you know, on my own, I would have tried a few different techniques. Like, what about this? What about that? Or like, oh, you know, I, I don't really have a, a game plan here. Um, and then pairing with folks this is like, oh, no, we've we've tried a few things. This is how we do it here. You know, we can always talk about that process, but like, we got this kind of like down and you're just like, instead of like sifting around in the dark, you almost have like a little bit of a guiding light. Um, and not like an, an authoritative kind of like, just do it this way. It was a back and forth conversation of like, Hey, we can move this. We've been here before. We're sharing our experiences. We can kind of move through these problems faster. Yeah. The, so I just want to, you're talking about doing six months worth of learning in about a week. Is that, did I get that correct? Oh, so that, oh yeah. Yeah. So that's a 24 X speed up. 
So if I say, if I break it down like that and I say that to you, hey, in pairing, you got a 24, like, and that was your first four weeks, is that how you would describe it? Yeah. Yeah. So in the first four weeks, you got a 20 times speed up plus. Yeah. And I was also going from, uh, you know, uh, when I was working by myself, I was on, I was full PHP. Uh, God bless myself. I, I su- subjected myself to five years of hardcore PHP without any frameworks. Um, and then uh, in Extreme Labs, when they were pairing, it was mobile work, but it was also a lot of Ruby on Rails. Uh, and they're essentially, you know, in a weekend, we need you to learn Ruby on Rails and start on Monday. Um, so I read a book as fast as I can. But, you know, until you do a, a, like larger projects on any code base, you never really know how to approach things, right? Like the book gets you to, to day one, I can start compiling things. Um, but it was really pairing that made me effective in, within the first week, right? Like absorbing all that knowledge, absorbing the practices, um, and just working with people. Um, yeah, it was, it was a great, I mean, it continues to be a great experience, but especially for on-ramping, um, I can never praise pairing highly enough. Yeah, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go a little bit behind because you had to bring a lot of people into pairing because you were in leadership and management both at extreme and pivotal and so your your experience sounds like you were just fluent instantly as and that's that's another thing people should know about you is that you're you know you were recruited to professional hockey as a teenager and you're also a, you are also a competitive gamer a competitive esports guy right so the thing that's always just blown me away about you is just how quickly you seem to become fluent with anything. And you have this absolutely just comfort. It doesn't seem to be, it doesn't seem to be effort for you. Right. And you know, maybe behind the scenes it is effort, but what was your experience when you brought people into pairing? What was their four weeks? Like, what would you prep them for? Uh, what would I prep them for? Um, I think because of the hiring practices that we had at um, Extreme Labs and Pivotal, um, I kind of knew that people had the core skills and kind of approach for pairing to make them successful. So I, I kind of attribute my agility for a lot of different things to coming up with or learning engineering through C++. Like, it's just very challenging. There's a lot of things that you can kind of like, you know, uh, get into trouble with. Um, so when, when you kind of learn a lot of the fundamental coding patterns, concepts, and everything else, like jumping around to different languages, it's more about the syntax than the, the fundamental learning. Um, I feel like the Pivotal and Extreme Labs kind of hiring process tested that fundamental learning to a certain extent to the point where people could be flexible. Um, and then from there on, it's more about the person and how open they are to communicating, right? Communicating clearly, effectively, um, and really working with that person next to them uh, to get the best outcome out of the, the problem they're trying to solve. Yeah, so I, I was never familiar with the Extreme Labs hiring process, but many people who are listening will be familiar with the RPI. Uh, what was Extreme's process? Uh, it was very similar. Is it like uh, Extreme Labs modeled itself after uh, Pivotal Labs uh, very, very closely. Wise thing to do. Um, Okay, and so, again, you've been on the both sides of the table, 
individual developer all the way up to founder and, and exit and things like that. Um, is there any, like, so I'm assuming that pairing for you and, the, and generally the XP model, that is, that's the model you choose when you have a choice. Is that right? Yep. What's the next best model to you? What's the, what's the thing that you've seen that's effective? Um, I mean, our group right now, um, for me, I kind of model the approach based off of the composition of the group. So in a high growth situation where a group is kind of constantly bringing in new people, um, you can have the best... I found that you can have the best documentation in the world. People don't like to read, right? Like, especially when your code base gets really, really large. Like, the people will definitely look up uh, specific things, but I have tried so many different initiatives with, you know, uh, Notion and, you know, uh, VMware, we had Confluence. Um, you know, Pivotal, I tried to do something with Google Sites, something to, like, index and search and everything else. And I, I feel like AI is going to help with that a lot, like, help, like, indexing and understanding um, but nothing beat, you know, just having somebody pair on the code, um, for our group specifically, because, uh, we are 11 people, um, they're all ex pivots, uh, and extreme labs folks, um, very seasoned engineers. There will be a lot of, there'll be some times where we pair on the approach that we're going to take. And then sometimes people will split up to accomplish that work and then come back together again. So a little bit of a hybrid model, uh, but still mostly pairing. Awesome. Well, uh, your, your journey into pairing was so smooth. It was just fantastic to hear. And I don't know, what would you say to someone out there who is considering, hey, I want to try to find a pairing role? What would you, how would you recommend that they prep? You know, we'll work to publicize companies that do pair XP style, but if, if, this is some, if someone's listening who's like, well, how would I get into this? What would you tell them to prep for? Ooh, that's a good question. I would say... Um, if they needed to or they felt like they needed to build up on uh, these particular like communicative skills, um, learn how to really articulate the sometimes very complex problem that you're trying to solve in either a tech stack or a piece of code. Um, the better you communicate your ideas to a group, the better they all understand it. And the better like a, a pairing group who's going to have a lot of empathy and want to help out each other, uh, the better you are articulating the problem you're trying to solve. Um, and you might need to do that for different people in different ways at different times. Um, the better off you'll be, the better your pair experience is going to be. And the more open you are to listening, right? Um, I've, I've seen people have uh, uh, very strong opinions, uh, strongly held. Um, and that doesn't make, you don't get the best out of a pairing group when, when people are doing that. Anything else you'd want to tell people about pairing? Uh, you know, are you hiring? Um... Yeah, I, I'd say like uh, we're trying to keep our group fairly lean, but, you know, we're always looking at, you know, what the next hire looks like. Um, in terms of other groups that are pairing, yeah, we know, you know, uh, a bunch of groups that are still pairing and uh, a bunch who aren't. 
Um, there's also the whole like in office and remote. Uh, so there's a, there's a lot of different factors to uh, choosing a place these days. Um, but yeah, yeah, there's definitely uh, a lot of folks who are uh, big fan of pairing, and I don't see them switching off anytime soon. All right, I'll, I'll round this whole thing out with your experience is you are 20 times more effective. And so if you're speaking to a founder, maybe not a technical founder, or even a technical founder who's only soloed, what would you say to that founder about how to adopt this model? And so, you know, maybe you're a special case and maybe 20X is not the right way to think about it. But for the average person who goes from solo programming to, to pairing, my experience is they, ex- they experience a 5 to 10X just, just notable right away. They could say, when I walked in the door, I was value one. Today, I'm value six. Like that, you know, in six months, you, you, you hear that. So if you're trying to convince founders or financial people or people in business who might be looking for a big bump in human productivity, what would you say to them about pairing or in XP in general? Uh, I, the, the way I kind of look at it is this and like i've i've had maybe way too much time to to think about this throughout the the pivotal journey and and how we did uh you know resourcing and allocations there um and then again as a founder and the way i kind of look at it is well the the group is getting kind of large there's getting to be you know uh we we started the pairing schedule but without it there becomes like knowledge silos so i'm like okay if, if I'm a founder and I'm looking at my group and, you know, people are working on, you know, different things, and, but I want to keep people in sync so we don't, you know, uh, deliver the wrong thing or get stuck because of, you know, one team's not talking to another and everything else. And even in a small group it, working in the same office, that can just happen and that happens naturally. Um, if I'm not pairing, how do I mitigate that risk? It's like, well, okay, I need to hire like, an, you know, another TPM or, you know, every, everybody needs to double down like really hard on documentation um, or we needed to take more time out of the day, you know, just to demo to each other or anything else. And when I think about all of those options versus pairing, pairing just seems to be the most cost-effective way to keep everybody in sync, uh, everybody in the same mental flow, as in like worrying about the same problems at the same time, which is very, very, very important. Um, you know, uh, especially to a small group like us, if one person has a misconception on, you know, what we should be focusing on, which layer of the stack, you know, you know, which UI components we're working on for that week. Like that, that week is a huge time loss for us. Um, so keeping the group in sync is, is a really, you know, large, high priority. It means that if I talk to one person, I know it's going to permeate through the group. Um, I don't have to, you know, keep on pulling the whole group into a meeting over and over and over again. Um, and that's that's the way I see it. The, the, the cost savings um, outweigh the fact that you kind of have like two people working on the same thing. And I feel like a lot of founders kind of like really struggle with that aspect. I'm like, oh, you feel like I have half the capacity. Uh, and uh, I, I think even at Pivotal, we would explain to folks like, yeah, in, in the short term, you might have a productivity gain for that first week. But then all these little gremlins and smells will show up, you know, in the first month, the month two and everything else. And you'll start getting some losses like, oh this other team was working in a way now we need to refactor it and, and, and dial back. So 
Yeah, I have my, the story that I was told when I came in is like, look, a, a, a superstar programmer will run circles around a paired team for three to six months. And then mm -hmm. the weight of just cognitively managing the overhead of the thing that they have written, especially without testing, will start to drag their productivity down. And uh, look, uh, what I saw was that a team that's only got 2,000 hours a year essentially to work together was legitimately effective six hours a day, 200 working days a year. Yep. And this is something that it's so challenging to communicate to a technical founder or a finance person who wants to think about, well, why would I use nominally two resources? You know, you think there's two resources on one thing. It's like, gosh, I wish it, I wish it were easy to calculate. Like, it's not, it doesn't work like that, though. Um, yeah. It's almost like it, you have to kind of see what the long tail outcomes of both are to kind of gauge, you know, which one you should do. Uh, I feel like we have the, the benefit of that experience. Not everybody does. So it's really hard to get that, get that experience across uh, sometimes. Um, but also it's just like, you know, if you have that super Scott or superstar uh, coder, just the social dynamics of that working style, right? Like one person running off, the other person not knowing why all these decisions were made, they didn't have any say in it. Then you kind of have like this, uh, this back and forth where, People are kind of like, you know, uh, working against each other in terms of making decisions and having to go back. And nobody likes doing that. Um, it, it, it adds up to a lot of little things. Yeah. Yeah. My, my experience here is that the hardest thing to do in a business to keep things really going is to keep aligned. Hey, yep. this quarter we're going to do X, Y, Z. And then like next week, someone is doing ABC. And the, the model, the full XP model keeps an alignment like almost nothing can. I have, I have never seen anything that is that aligning. And yeah, accounting right now just doesn't have a way to measure alignment, which is a, is a big problem. Yeah, I actually, um, I, I talked to um, uh, an executive at a, at a company. Um, I knew them from VMware. And um, they ended up uh, joining as a, a VP as another company and uh, there was a big leadership turnover. Um, and he said, for the next six months, six to eight months, um, he would randomly get these messages from people or sometimes full teams saying they're like, they're like, hey, I'm done. And he'd be like, who are you? Because <laughs> they were never like tracked. They were never like in sync. Like so it'd be like individuals just working off in the corner um, and just soloing and running with it. And then um, coming out of nowhere and he'd be like, oh, I didn't, you weren't even on, you weren't even being tracked. I, I'd have no idea where you, where you kind of came from and having to get them back into alignment. Yeah, that, that's a, that's such a classic problem, especially when you, when you don't have the alignment, you get people who are very well-intentioned and maybe even high capacity running off on a certain direction that pleases them and seems to be what everyone is asking for. But that is, that is chaos, even with really good people. That's chaos within a few weeks. Yeah, All right. I can definitely ramble on for hours about the, the benefits and <laughs> yeah, yeah. the limits sometimes of, of pairing. So I'd love to go anywhere that you want to go or... Same well, let's, uh, let's hit mantle, right? So this is by pivots, for pivots. What the heck are you up to? Uh, mantle, so it, it's, it's really 
interesting. I thought company equity was more of like a solved problem. Um, and I remember in Extreme Labs, um, when I joined, they would be like, hey, you have these options. And they would kind of just give me uh, like a, an email or a PDF. Um, and that was it. There's no portal, no anything. Um, I didn't have many questions because I was early on in my career. And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know what this is. It sounds good. They said it could be worth something later on. But who knows? I, I don't know. It seems like fictitious. Um, and then uh, as I started learning about options and everything else, I'm like, okay, there has to be like a better system for this. I became a manager. I was helping issue options and everything else. And like, I didn't fully understand, but I'm like, okay, these are important. People need to know about them. Um, so uh, before the Pivotal acquisition, um, we got uh, UBS and we got like a tracking system. But the equity for how it was, it was doled out to employees and how to track it and your run rate with all that stuff it was all done in spreadsheets. And then we got to Pivotal and I'm like, okay, Pivotal's a larger company. We have to be doing something a little bit more structured here. Um, it was still spreadsheets um, that would output to, you know, eventually uh, Workday and uh, we used UBS for a little bit and then we jumped to like Charles and then uh, at EMC, I think we moved to E-Trade, I don't know, or it was VMware. Um, but throughout all these processes and even... Um, at some of these larger companies, I saw a lot of spreadsheets to to plan out something that's really important, which is you know options and equity uh, going to employees, and um, you know I when I left VMware, I was actually tapped on the shoulder by you know many different companies, and because I know to ask this question now, I would ask them, I would ask the founders of like, hey you know, what is your cap table look like? You know, like what kind of decisions have you been making for the company at this level? Because I, I know how important that is now. I know if I'm going to join a company, it's going to be for the long run. I want to see where this could possibly end up. And I would see like a lot of the companies that I actually wanted to join, I would see their cap tables be like completely obliterated by about bad round or a founder who kind of ran off with a bunch of equity and all these different scenarios where I'm just like, oh, geez, like this is actually a really bad setup. I don't know how a company gets out of this. Um, and it all led up to companies making early decisions in their financial journey that they didn't quite understand. Um, so that's why we're building Mantle. Uh, no more spreadsheets. You can put in your cap table, all of your stakeholders, all the safes, all the convertibles, we give you the calculators and the planning tools to make all of those decisions a lot easier um, and take out a bunch of human error out of those situations. And so does it also make it easier for someone who's receiving an equity award? Like, it, it, you know, can I track over time, uh, you know, what the dilution is? You know, is my, do I have a running total of, you know, what percentage I have, things like that? Yeah, so we're building out that view soon. Right now, it's just the company side. We want to build out that side. The, an interesting part of that is um, how that gets presented to the employee, right? It's a very nuanced conversation that we're, we're still kind of like sifting through. Because um, I feel like, you know, even at, at Pivotal, it was presented to us in like a few different ways. And like, which way do you want to talk about it? Might depend on the market and everything else. I don't know. It's up to companies to choose how they want to do that with their employees. 
Uh, but we definitely want to have all the tools for the employees to go through like, okay, these are the different exit scenarios. This is what I have. I could plan these things out and ultimately track the performance of the company year over year. Uh, we'll give you that whole history as they go through different evalu- like valuations and everything else. Uh, a lot more powerful on that side. Um, yeah. And we're putting in all the protections to make sure that they're not putting in like their work emails and stuff like that. I had that happen once or twice. So, like I can't log in anymore. I don't even know where this like if I have money or options anymore. Like it's it's a we want to definitely want to make that whole side a lot a lot better for folks. Gosh, it sounds like you're paying attention to what users might need <laughs> and the situations they might find themselves in. I've been through the pain. It, it's uh, yeah, it's it's really easy to lose track of this stuff. So. Well, what, what stage are you guys in? I think you mentioned you're at 14 folks working. Uh, we're at 11. Uh, and then we, get, we do the, the co-op program through Waterloo as well. So we're always uh, accepting some co-ops from there. Great. And you're in Toronto? Yep. Uh, so where are you at in your go-to-market? And you know, where are you looking to land with this company? Um, well, we just publicly launched yesterday. We got featured on TechCrunch, which is awesome. Um, we're just trying to onboard as many companies as possible. Um, I just had to, I just uh, talked to a customer right before this. This is why I was a minute late. Um, and they were running a fund and they're like, we need something to track all of our company's things. It's all in spreadsheets. <laughs> we're like, okay, yeah, well going through an auditing process uh, and they don't have the, the history. So uh, we're definitely going to help them out with that. But yeah, we're in the process of just onboarding as many companies as possible who need help with this. Hmm. Well, you have, a, you have a, a specialized audience here. So how many companies do you want to onboard? What's your price point today? Um, we're doing for everybody who signs up in this early stage of the company uh, is free for the first year. Um, it's going to depend on company size, but generally, uh, the companies that are signing on are fairly small. Uh, so it'll be about a hundred dollars per month. Okay. Here in October, 2023 for a short while, you can sign up for free cap table management and then continue on at a pretty reasonable price on a monthly basis for what's a huge labor saving device and also completely quashes a huge amount of thrash. Uh, which is just not good for anyone. It's back to aligning, right? It's a high alignment product. Yeah, I, I definitely, uh, you know, a, a founder has to think about so many things any given day. Um, it's really easy to put the equity, like auditing and tracking in the in the back burner until it becomes a problem. Uh, we're just helping people get on that journey early so they don't have that problem later on. Um, so yeah, yeah, we're just happy happy to have people sign on whenever they're comfortable, but hopefully before uh, they run into any trouble. All right, well, let's make sure we get the contact information out there. The company is called Mantle. Where exactly do they find you? Uh, go to withmantle.com. Withmantle.com. Mm-hmm. And right now it's free for Lighthouse customers. That's... <laughs> yeah. sure. Okay, so if you're listening, you can solve a huge problem from people who are super good at software and really understanding users' needs. You can get that problem solved for free for the next however long you're doing this intro. So uh, if you're listening, you should definitely just go sign up. If you have a company, you want to do business with Dwayne Ford, I'll just tell you that. <laughs> Thanks. That means a lot coming from you. It really does. Yeah, well, so 
you know, we, we can we can wrap on that um, if there's nothing else to say about mantle, and we can definitely go, you know, off-roading here in terms of, you know, the kind of conversations that we usually have. Oh, yeah. It's, it's called Radio Free XP for a reason, right? There's, there's sometimes some things you need to get taken care of. But yeah, take, it, <laughs> take yeah, your jacket off, right? Taking the hoodie off thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're going gonna, deep. It's going to get it warm in here. So, uh, you know, uh, we worked directly together on, uh, as directors on Cloud Foundry. And we, you know, we, we were in meetings weekly together. We, we had different focuses, but we were, we were working that. And so the thing, the thing about you is that you got, you got the pivotal assumption set of leadership the same way you're like, oh, yeah, I showed up and I was 20 times more effective in my first four weeks. Like, that's just Dwayne Ford. Like, that's it. And so management, you... I just never saw you make a misstep. I never saw like a big blunder. I never saw, you know, it, what I what I, I guess what I'm really saying is I didn't ever see a situation where something happened and you freaked out. You're like, okay, well this thing has happened. There's probably a way to progress through this, and you know, so many of our conversations have been on really the basics of leadership because I, I I mean I think for many people you're you know the favorite mentor. And so I was always very curious about how did you develop that? You know, I, from my point of view, I look at like, if you're good at sports, if you're good at, not just good at a sport, like if you're recruitable at the professional level in a sport, you must deeply understand something. And so, you know, that intro is a way to ask, you know, how you're here now, how do you look at leadership? Do you subscribe to any particular theory? What are you following along for your leadership model? Uh, that's a good question. Um, first of all, I, I think uh, you flatter me. <laughs> Wouldn't I, just I think, be me. Wouldn't I think me. I, uh, I, I definitely had uh, many missteps. Um, and I, I think a lot of people in our industry and I think a lot of a lot of different businesses, uh, not just our industry. I, I feel like a lot of folks get nudged into management um, with not a lot of preparation or support sometimes. Um, so I've always been super empathetic for like other folks coming into the role. Like I'll make as much time as possible for any of you. Um, you know, uh, I've. I've evolved to have like one or two courses and materials that have people like really accelerate through it, but uh, just giving people the time. Um, I, I, so I think I've had a lot of missteps, uh, but I've always put in, you know, 10x the effort to fix those missteps. And I think people really appreciate that, right? Um, I never want to project that I am perfect or anybody kind of needs to be perfect. Um, but we can always come together and solve a solution no matter what it is. Um, I, I think, you know, even in my own family, I, I, I kind of, uh, I'm kind of treated as the, the crisis person. Like if, if anything goes wrong, like Dwayne will just like show up, be there, be calm and like know how to handle the situation. Um, even now, even though like, uh, not to say that I have the answers, but I'll be like, I'll be able to show up and be like, okay, how do we solve this? Like, let's go through the steps and like go through it. Um, I attribute it a lot to 
um, hockey and the gaming stuff. I feel like I've been in so many high pressure situations where the stakes were like really, really high within like seconds um, to the point where when a lot of like business problems come up, I'm like, I, I understand that this is actually like a thing and, you know, everybody has like in high tension right now, but I, you know, I've, I, I always compare that to, you know, like flying off a ramp and missing the speed and not knowing where you're going to land. Like those like 10 to like well, five to 10 seconds where you're hovering in the air and you don't know where to land, like you're, the amount of anxiety and self-reflect and like, <laughs> wait, are you, are you an expert at some other sport? I don't know. Cause I totally forgot to mention race car driving. <laughs> oh, oh, race car driving. Not as much, but I did a bunch of, um, uh, I've always done a bunch of, you know, like half pipe kind of stunt kind of things. And I did crashed ice, which is, uh, where you go down a ski hill, but it's covered in ice and they put ramps there. Um, and it's a race. So uh, I've always been into like a little bit of the extreme sports side. And yeah, the, the, you're eventually going to run into a case where you're, you know, whether you're skiing or doing the crash ice or you know, I was on rollerblades uh, at times where you just don't gauge your speed properly and you don't know where you're going to land and it, you know it might be painful. Um, so in, in terms of like really like critically assessing a situation in like five seconds versus like when a business scenario comes up and we're like, okay, let's sit down for an hour and, and sort it out. I, like I feel very calm in those situations because uh, I, I feel like I've been in some kind of like life-threatening <laughs> situations that yeah, put it into perspective. Yeah, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dump one of the management models that I use, which is the five T's. Uh, <laughs> it's talent, temperament, time, tools, and training. Right time, tools, and training you can supply to people. Mm-hmm. But talent and temperament are hard to supply. This is, this is the, you know, this is in the sports arena, you cannot coach speed. And so I, I guess when you say that, like you're the temperamentally, you're the calm one, that's what I'm reading. Like I just never, maybe you messed up a lot and bad, I don't know. But your temperament around it was always, well, it's just calming, right? Be, and again, when we popped out to Pivotal, what I, what I observed about Pivotal is there was always a method to handle whatever happened. It's like, the team is lost. Okay, do a re-inception in a minimum, just see, right? Yeah. Or, or any of these, you know, other ways that we had for aligning teams. You know, we were talking with David Lang earlier today, and there were pivots that I counted on to be able to realign teams. Yeah, and so that that's another temperament and talent thing, you know, you you when you found that. Yeah. And I I attribute a lot of um um I I kind of rely on or I I think I I built up a lot of muscle memory around team building when it came to hockey. Like, you know, the the fundamental understanding like as a kid that like no, a successful team isn't a whole bunch of you, right? Like, you're hockey, like, you need a goalie, you need a defenseman, you need, like, all these different roles on a hockey team or any sports team. You know, they, they played a few different team sports. I'm just like, no, you're not the most important thing there. You almost, you can't be the most important thing there. You have to work with people. It's actually more fun when you work with people, and it's all it works in harmony. Everybody knows their role. Everybody's in sync on, like, what you're trying to accomplish, 
Like it's a it's a very when all that gets to the right level of understanding and everybody's there and you're kind of you know like mid season everybody knows like it's everything just clicks and everybody it's like a a, a beautiful symphony of execution that's happening um, in a sport when that goes well. Yeah, and I, I never played team sports at all, and I was definitely a lone ranger kind of solo guy. And my first real deep experience with working on a team and, and having the experience you're having, like, oh my gosh, this is clicking. Oh my gosh, this is like a billion times funner than you know trying to trying to grind it alone. Um, yeah, I I love that about Pivotal. I mean, I think maybe at the top of this we talked about the career changing nature of going to Pivotal, and for me it was absolutely career changing like I, my career didn't, didn't didn't like jump tracks it jumped dimensions yeah no definitely yeah that as we've always talked about teams like you're so a pivotal team it was roughly the same size as a hockey team uh, you know like how many i don't even i don't know anything about hockey how many people are on the ice at one time uh five five and how many people are on the bench in a how, how, what makes up a hockey team in general um, in general, so I mean, you'll have five players in the ice. You'll have one goalie, right? Um, you have two defensemen. You know, three kind of forward, um, and then you'll have like two, an extra two or three lines of people on the bench. Um, a lot of the times, you'll have uh, the person who's uh, playing center. If you don't have enough players, uh, they have to double up. So, uh, I think that's the only reason I have a good cardio cardiovascular system is I was playing uh, center on a lot of my teams. And uh, when other players would have another like shift to rest, I would have to rest and go out with the very next line. So I trained myself to, you know, kind of skate really hard, get calm really fast, skate really hard, get calm really fast, get to do it <laughs> twice as quick as, <laughs> as others. You're, you're, you're tuned by sports for the iteration model at Pivotal, right? Like it's just... Yeah. It's, we're, there's a lot of like weird analogies. I, I think like a long time ago, I heard about like all these tech companies hiring like football players and stuff like that. I was like, why are they doing that? And then like throughout my career, I'm like, it starts making a little bit more sense, like the whole like team methodology and everything else. I, I will say that like um, going back to the team um, analogy, I do realize that with every persona, there are pros and cons. So like for me, I'm, I'm, I'm calm about everything, but it also means I'm bad at celebrating. And like as a group, you definitely should celebrate your wins. And I recognize that like I sometimes just miss those marks. So when I'm looking to round out my, my uh, like a, a group, I'm just looking at the personalities, whether the deficiencies. So like I know I like, you know, part of my group, we have a few people who are really good at celebrating. Like, hey, let's take a second at like, hey, we did something really cool there. I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't think I'm very good at that. How do you identify someone who's good at celebrating? Um, I, I think those people have really valued like them looking at the group and being like, hey, no, something really cool happened here. Let's take a second. Right. I'm, I'm generally a person who's like, go, 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 go. Like what's on to the next problem? Um, I think that's the other other problem of being uh, uh, the person who can kind of going into a lot of different situations i had one or two employers who would be like hey you're now the firefighter um you go to all the worst projects you are fixing everything um which is always something i you know after being through it i very much was very cognizant of when uh becoming a, a leader making sure that doesn't happen to other people um but yeah 
yeah, a, a team needs to be well balanced and it's, it's not always going to be about one person. So, and I think the pairing model kind of emphasizes that too. Like you're not going to sit down and solo, you're going to work with these other folks and we're all going to solve this together. Um, and the balancing of all the views is what's going to be the best outcome. Yeah. All right, so uh, leadership is certainly one of the things we talk about. Thanks for like tying it together with with sports and you know if you're if you're into sports and into tech, you know, drop us a line. Uh, I want to I I want to shift to some of the other things that you have done. So you you did take a swing through Web three, right? Yep. And and then we are for sure uh, at. Uh, the foot of a revolution here. So I'd love to hear your, I mean, I'd love to hear your summary take on Web3. Where are we at? Where did we go wrong? Is it going anywhere? I think, so I'm, uh, I'm not a gambling man, uh, but Web3 had a really good opportunity to disrupt a lot of financial rails. Um, maybe about a year or two ago. But what has happened is um, a lot of large financial organizations have pretty much set up their own networks, their own private Ethereum networks to make themselves more efficient. So that, when I saw Web3, I was like, oh, a distributed ledger that would keep everything aligned. It sounds like the software that gets sold to banks for millions or they build in-house, right, has now become open source. And that to me in my head is almost like, well, anybody who wants to make a fintech, it's now analogous to when you know, MySQL or Postgres became open source. Now, if I want to make a bit of software, I don't have to think about you know, data at rest and how I'm going to query it and everything else. It unlocks a new level of productivity for everybody and everybody's solution like jumps up a level. Um, Web3 had that opportunity to do that enable a whole bunch of like fintechs and people to quickly plug into a very viable financial system that could plug into major rails and provide a whole new wave of innovation. What has ended up happening is these private networks run by, you know, banks. Uh, They essentially wanted to keep their control, uh, regulatory and safety and, you know, just overall control, which, you know, in in hindsight, it's like, yeah, they're never going to want to give that up. Um, and they've used that to open up flexibility a little bit in their systems, but they've mostly used it to keep themselves more organized. So I think JPMC has an example of how they use Web3 to coordinate with other banks uh, to make sure that you know fraud is not so uh, fraught in their system. They they had some website or stats on their website. They're like, hey, throughout a typical day, they're transacting through how many billions or trillions, and how many of that is fraud, uh, just from JPMC not being able to talk to like, you know, another bank um, and they have to sort that out. Now they're using Web3 to just keep all that in check. Um, so I've, I, I hadn't ever heard this take that, it, you know, that enable, radically enables a fintech. And I, I had certainly never heard the take that there's a whole, essentially a whole new easy button, like, for lack of a better term. Um, are there good examples to point to of people who have taken advantage of that? Um, I would say if you look at the fundraising platforms that are on Web3, I think they get close to that model. They're like, hey, here's a new way of, you know, contributing money to an initiative that 
you had before. You don't have to worry about wires. You don't have to worry about, you know, uh, uh, transacting money from one to the other. Just do it on Web3, load up Ethereum, and just, like, do it. Um, it all gets a lot easier. Um, I think where this is all going to land is all the big banks are going to do their own private networks. Um, they're going to keep their control but become more efficient. And the open Web3 world is going to feel more like a, like a Western Union where people can send money to each other a lot easier. Um, but the stuff that is tied to like your bank account and major funds is going to be on private networks. It seems to be that's happening in Brazil right now. Uh, and everybody else seems to be following that, that model. Okay, well, I, I have, now we'll, now we'll really go off-road. So <laughs> one, one of the things is that pivots and in, in people who are deeply into XP, they understand the world a certain way. And like I said, I, I regard your, your temperament where like, hey, there are problems, but there are good models for working. I, I regard that as so valuable. You just, <laughs> like it's so hard to find outside, and it's so easy to find inside the pivotal model. So... A big, a big point of doing this whole podcast is to start to rehydrate that network of people who know how to think together. And what, so I'm a, I'm a strong believer, I'm a believer in alignment, and I'm a believer in high trust systems. High trust systems have very little friction, and you can take risks, and you can do deals, and you know, so how would we essentially wire together all of the pivots? Just imagine every pivot who is working as a consultant independently, something like that. Mm -hmm. And what we really want to do is we want to, you talked about, you can form a team and that team is moving in a week and not just moving a little, right? They are, they're on plane and they are going. So what is the way to stitch together? I'm going to, I'm going to drop a whole other thing here on you. Um, Peter Diamantis out of VC out of the Bay area has long had this concept of exponential organizations an ideal Point, you know, point to Instagram, which was less than 20 people and sold for a billion dollars because they used off-the-shelf digital tools you know, to, build, to build this crazy network that was so valuable. Um, I'm looking for how would every independent pivot put themselves out there and can be, uh, I, I don't know, engaged directly because a team needs it. Hey, I need someone for three weeks. I'm at, you know what it was like at Extreme or at Labs, which is, hey, uh, like I know exactly how to get an app in the App Store. So I get assigned to that team who needs to do that this week. And I get that app in the App Store and I get assigned to someone else. So I love that model. So how do we bootstrap that? It, does it make sense to try a Web3 route to bootstrap a consortium of people who know how to work the same way, generally... There's, a, there's this other thing we'll throw in. There's a company called Common Paper where they have templates for legal documents and then they publish the template that you click through online. You're like, here is the work model I use. And so I have this crazy fantasy that, that Common Paper pivots who, you know, I'll use an example of this. I don't want to do any work for hire work. I might do something with a completely permissive open source license, but I am not doing work for hire at all, just period. And so if you're a pivot who is like, hey, I'm, I will contract, I won't work for hire, here's my alternative to work for hire, here's the URL where you can actually align you know, what I offer with what you offer, and then I would imagine that as pivots, we, we continue to iterate that. And then the consortium is just like standard 
you know, standard project under three weeks, no equity, click. You know, standard project, six weeks, small equity, whatever. Long project, equity. And so it, it becomes extremely easy for pivots to transact with each other. So I'm going to say one more thing, which is the Peter Diamantis exponential organization is based on, there was something called Coase's quote-unquote law, which was Ronald Coase, a, uh, an economist, basically said the reason companies get big is because it's cheaper to transact inside a company because of the, con essentially, you don't have the drag of a contract. Okay, so his whole point is that's not true anymore. And so while I, I'm a fan of Diamantis and I like what he's saying, what I really need is a believable path. Okay, if it's easier to transact outside of an organization, how is it easier, right? Like, where is it? What's the path? And so if every pivot had their own contract that was actually breakdownable, like, so I, if I wanted to hire someone, I'm like, I need someone for three weeks who is willing to whatever, just take salary now or take, a, a, take, a, take cash now, no equity, all the way to I need someone who doesn't need cash right now but was willing to work for equity. And imagine, uh, and here I'm, here I'm in fantasy land, right? But if there were a Ethereum kind of network where you could just bootstrap something like that and then go out and find pivots who want to service that kind of network, that to me sounds like an amazing use of technology. Yeah, that'd be really cool. Um, I'm not sure if the Web3 part would help or hinder something like that. And then it's like a, that's an implementation detail in, in the end. Um, it's like, how do you transact? Um, I think uh, I've always flirted around with, and we never had the time to allocate teams toward this, like what does a better allocations tool kind of look like? Um, I would, uh, in my head, I always wanted to try out the model where, you know, everybody in the organization is kind of there, uh, but they're also required to pair a certain amount of time. Um, and people would kind of have to like pair up. Um, and if you didn't, you would get almost kind of like randomly assigned within your like skill set and everything else. Um, I wonder if an organization had like that where their where people were pairing or they're open to pairing, um, what it meant to bring in specialists into that, right? Like I know this team is working on this set of problems. Um, they've expressed that they don't have the expertise to maybe go over this hump. Like, how do I like click, click, uh, specialized, you know, pairing person or somebody you know, like, or somebody who's a specialist is also very good at pairing and communicating and, and working people through these problems. How do I just like click, click and let that happen? Or, you know, just have those specialists in the system who are constantly floating around, right? And the system's telling them like, hey, you can't spend more than four weeks in this one area. Yeah. So uh, imagine that you, that the pipeline for pivot, pivotal based consultants is just like that, right? So you're essentially, you would essentially put in a bid. Hey, I have X hours of time a week for the next N weeks. And so you're just essentially in a market. And, you know, thanks for pointing out that it's an implementation DLTL on Web3. I, you know, I, I don't want to overly complicate it. But the goal, the whole goal of the system is to make transactions a, a very high trust transaction model. That is, 
if you are using one of these standard contract models, I can, it's highly legible. Jesse, Jesse Alford is listening in, right? And so we talk a lot about the legibility of a process. Mm. So I want to make an ultra high legibility process. I am available. I want to do this type of work. Secondary preference is this type of work. Rate request is X, right? Happy to, you know, you could say, you could actually trip the thing. Like I will, I will parachute into disasters. Premium for that is X. And so imagine if every pivot who wanted to work independently was just simply legible to that network. Okay, so that allows you to go and build the next level of this fantasy, which is I have long believed that what's missing from the, especially the software development world, is Hollywood-style agents. Like, like the notion that someone would just pay you the same amount they would pay someone else is almost completely ridiculous. It's just it like, you're, oh, you're a developer, so you get paid. Like, it makes no sense. But that market is not legible to people who pay to have software written. They don't under, like, so everyone knows that a big name blockbuster Hollywood star gets paid insanely more because there's very little risk in the property you invest in with them. Right. And so I don't, I don't understand how the market has gone this long in software is so incredibly valuable. Like it makes, it makes what you make off of a movie look like literally nothing. Uh, I don't know about the economics of video games, but aren't video games just like insanely more productive than even a Hollywood movie? Yeah. That, that whole world is a, I mean, uh, that's a whole talk in itself, but yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a grind. It's a, it's a pressure cooker. But, it, but so if I invested $100 million in making a video game and I, make, and I invested $100 million in making a movie, I would expect to get, I don't know, 1-2x on the movie, and I would expect, I think, a lot more from the video game. Yeah, there's always that like artistic license of like, you know, you can spend a lot of money and still do a bad job and end up with nothing, <laughs> right? Just like with any software project. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the gaming market is is so, so large these days, right? Especially if you're yeah. hitting up all the consoles and platforms and everything else. Yeah. It's it's nuts. Um, I think when it when it comes to um, this whole conversation reminds me there is a there was a pivot who was pairing on Twitch for a while. It was an amazing experiment. To see them just like working on a problem, kind of get stuck trying to work through it, and seeing the Twitch chat like with suggestions and everything else, like they ended up uh, stopping uh, doing it because they had to go back to uh, normal work things, and they obviously can't show work code on Twitch. Uh, but they made a small game there, and and they really appreciated that uh, experience. It was awesome. Um, but yeah, I would uh, I would love to see a, a system. I think there's a lot of there's a lot of organizations that are constantly looking for expertise. I feel like there's a lot of organizations that don't even know when they're truly stuck. Like they, like they just, they just don't know. Um, and, um, I, I think it is a very good skill to have somebody in there. So like, I, I, I think in terms of like, uh, an implementation, that would work for folks is just like have a retainer for every kind of skilled person that's going through and have them just cycle through your teams. Um, you know, anybody who's going to 
I have a feeling anybody who's going to pay for a solution like that is going to want like a very predictable kind of like, hey, I want to pay this many a year, this many a month to kind of like do my resource allocation and planning and like, you know, financial forecasting and stuff like that. So like if a certain amount of money would guarantee me like a certain amount of like pivots or experienced people kind of cycling through my team like throughout the year, that works great. And I'll collect feedback from my team and they can kind of cycle around, cycle around through the organization. I think with the way it works right now is like people are like, I need a Java expert. And like some Java expert will come in and do like, you know, slide decks and like kind of like talk at the team and, you know, work them through a, a few situations, architectural stuff. Um, but in terms of like sitting down and pairing and working through the day-to-day problems, um, yeah, you know, having somebody cycle through an organization and do that and collect the feedback and, you know, kind of report back would be amazing. I, I think very fundamentally game changing for a lot of organizations. Okay. So let, let me, let me walk through the work scenario, the business scenario here and you tell me if I'm, if I'm tracking you. So let's pretend I am a, a director of development somewhere mm-hmm. and I've got, I have as much as one full-time employee's money. And so if, if believably, if I could subscribe for the cost of one full-time employee to someone who I reliably believe is five times more effective than that employee. And so you have to do a sale on that. And so you'd have to sell to people who understand what pairing is as your initial market. Then you have to amp the heck out of whatever they achieve at that market as your follow-on, as your, as your sales follow-on, because you're going to have yeah. to reach people who don't know what you're talking about. So the uh, A model would be just to subscribe to a service. Um, and so would you imagine that you would just say, hey, you know, standard full burden cost for a good developer is $250,000 a year, and so you subscribe for two fifty? Is that how you would do it? And then you would get nominal 5x above that because you're, you're cycling people in to solve problems? Yeah, it kind of gets into the, I feel like there's a bunch of staffing models that have probably played out that you can lean on to, to see the outcomes of some of these things. But, you know, when you talk to people and they're, the amount of things they have to worry about for hiring a person and validating their skill set and, you know, going through the interview process and everything else. Um, if all that can be taken away by taking that away, like or alleviated by saying that like, Hey, this person has paired before they've worked with many teams through like large problems. They know how to like, they have the skill set. They know they have the track record. Um, and they're just going to be there to help you out. I think that a lot of people would jump on that opportunity. Um, especially if they're experienced, um, they would they would jump on that opportunity. There, there'll be some issues with, you know, uh, like places like like in Canada, we get a certain amount of government rebates for like every employee that we hire. So like you have to reason about that and everything else. But those things will always kind of like pop up. But um, I like uh, I was helping out a recruiting startup before and you know, the amount of time and energy over like the three to six months to hire one person, that's a lot of money. It's yeah, <laughs> a lot of time. It's, yeah, it's completely redonkulous too. So uh, I, I'm just, I'm thinking about the use cases. So uh, again, I'm, I'm a director of software engineering somewhere. Like I, I, I'm not an executive. I, I, I just, I have real problems. I like, look, I, I don't want to have a dumb, stupid argument. I have real problems I want to solve. So if I'm having a hard time hiring 
I might actually just want someone to come in and better and give me a believable job description and maybe even articulate what my process is. Gosh, how do you sell this, right? How do you position the sale for that? Because yeah. I think if, I, if I'm sitting there and I'm looking at my, my different options, it's like, well, I can hire like a consulting firm. But that always ends up being like a disjointed kind of like you need to hire another full-time person just to keep that consulting firm in sync with your main team, right? They're not actually part of your team as much as they, they say and everything else. It always just goes off the rails. Um, uh, unless you hired Pivotal Labs or Pivotal, we became essentially part of your team, right? That's why that model worked. Um, and this would be like almost like a, the microservices approach to Pivotal Labs, right? Like instead of doing a a very large engagement with a large team and a large contract, like, hey, piecemeal, you can do one at a time and everything else, a little bit more approachable, um, a lot more predictable, and um, again, more reliable because I don't have to suss out a consulting firm, what are they good at, what are they not good at. Um, <clears throat> you know you know that it's going to you know, generally just work out and be uh, a good outcome. Um, and then I don't have to worry about like the disjointed kind of like A and B, like team A and B, how to keep them in sync and everything else. Um, and the hiring process just like disappeared. I can have somebody on Monday instead of being like, oh, I need to predict that I need somebody in six months. I need to start up my hiring pipeline, put out a job posting, go through all the interviews, everything else. And that's if they work out well, I get started in like three to six months. Uh, you can always have the missteps. You have to start over again. It's part of the process. Yeah. Um, so if if I'm that if if I'm that director and I have some acquaintance with pivotal stuff, like I've worked on a team or I worked at a place where they where they came in, like I'm I'm going to understand the value. Um, I'm still going to want a standard vetting process, I think, and so I'm going to want some version like a reverse RPI, essentially. Like, I, I want to I know that this person can come in and actually articulate what's going on. Uh, we're, missing, we're missing Nat Bennett, who is, like, to me, the, the person who understands, like, how to go and map that org. So maybe they'll, maybe they'll work out a, a process there. Um, yeah, I'm sure, I mean, like, with every, just like with every other, like, like service or consulting firm, they'll have a, an interview process of some kind or a way to reason about this, I think. Yeah, yeah, and so... The the goal, my goal here would be to, uh, I, I'll never forget listening to uh, who's the big, before Spotify, there was the radio station, Pandora. Hmm. I, I, in the, the Pandora was in the Bay Area and the founder of Pandora came in and he said, I, I'm building this company so that being a musician is a middle class job. The whole point was like, hey, let's get stuff out there. There's great music and it doesn't have distribution. So let's get it distributed and then upvoted and then, you know, paying essentially radio royalties to the people who do the music. Uh, I have a, a very same thing. Like the pivotal, I say it like this. So if, if I want to send a pivot into a place, I do want this to be like Hollywood. I want to be the agent like, hey, you know, Mr. or Mrs. Pivot is coming through. And we, we, don't, we don't actually bother them with stupid stuff. So if you can't do remote access for new people, don't even call us, right? Because an absolute minimum requirement is you're going to have to be able to get that person online with 
not garbage. Right. So, so I want to say that I want to say the kinds of things that they will need access to, they need to understand about the business in order to make something. And this is a complex, it's a complex sale, but the insane capacity of pivots allows you to make a kinds of kinds of promises that is that are not possible to make in other consulting places. And then here's a here's the real kicker. This is what I really want. You're you're in the cap table business. Like, how do we all become owners? That's the real thing that I want. Right. So I want someone to go to a place and be able to contribute at this completely outsized value and then have and have a tail for that. Some long tail, maybe it doesn't produce very much, but over your career, if you're receiving a few hundred dollars a month from a bunch of different companies, and maybe this is too deeply into fantasy land, but if you can build these little income tails by doing projects, right? that's a, that's a strategy in Silicon Valley. There are people who just go and work for their first equity for their first equity award and then they literally quit they just they buy it and they quit and yep. like there's this famous guy named Chuck Rossi who was the one and only delivery lead at Facebook forever it was one guy who sat on a chat and merged your code into production if you were there and this guy was merciless he did that at Facebook. He did that at Google. Where else was he at? He was somewhere else. And so he was collecting these huge equity awards, right? And he just, he, he, was, he was an operations guy too. So I was uh, Chucker. I love Chuck Rossi. Um, I want that same thing for everyone. Like, it just makes sense. Pivots have way high capacity. Okay. And so now we're at the foot of the next revolution. Like, yeah. So, I think there's like it, it's a it's a very interesting and, and very multifaceted solution. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how you get there in a meaningful way in some of these organizations without providing like the full solution, almost like a, a pivotal labs or more. Right. Um, I think like the working for equity. I'll talk to that first. I think that's definitely a model that a lot of people were able to benefit from a while ago. Now what we're seeing is like the, the financial savviness around equity now is like people showed up to our platform. They're like, no, 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 no. We don't want to see numbers of options. We want to see dollars. Like I don't know exactly how much somebody I'm paying somebody in terms of options. And I want to know it for like these many exit scenarios. Right. So that they know that like everything is controlled and in check and everything else. So I'm not sure like, I think that still happens, but I'm, I'm not sure if it's as prevalent. And then, um, yeah, like for a model like this, like I, I do worry, like, like sometimes I've seen like some of these big organizations, like, uh, sometimes it's like the team needs help, but sometimes the whole organization needs help. Right. And like, what do you do in those situations where like, Hey, somebody's like, puts a person into an impossible situation, like, uh, and like then nobody's having fun, right? They need to go through the whole leadership stack and be like, what's going on? They might be, not be open to it. Like, uh, these are all consulting problems that we all, all faced uh, during that, that whole thing, right? A hundred percent. I just, you're, 
the notion that a large organization can make rational decisions is a, is a flaw. And so but I, still, I still think there's some route here, which is they will buy point solutions. And so mm -hmm. when we were at Cloud Foundry, I would always talk about the pivotal model as essentially grass plugs model. We just go to a place, whoever will talk to us, we'll, we'll plant a grass plug there. And if we're successful at all, we will network out, so we'll literally run a viral marketing campaign internally you know, when we put up CI boards, uh, are you aware of this thing in Cloud Foundry? When you put up a CI board, it, you go to some large bank or whatever, and you work with a team, and you're like, hey, you guys got to get a TV up here so we can actually see the <laughs> CI system. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? That is like a lightning bolt in the middle of that. People are walking by like, well, why do they have a TV? Like, what are they doing with it? How and, and you just point it out like, oh, that's exactly what we're doing. And we can see, and they're like, well, I want one of those. And so it's, it literally becomes a viral marketing campaign. And I just always refer to it as grass plugs. We either were going to spread out like that and those grass plugs were going to grow together or we weren't, right? I mean, it's really, it's just a strategy and you don't get a guarantee on the return. Yes. I, I definitely believe at that level, yeah, like definitely could be like uh, the osmosis of affecting the people next to you in that way. Um, it's definitely super powerful, especially when people see like the good feedback or like another team being productive, like definitely gonna do it. And by the way, I've never ordered more TVs in my life than when I was at Pivotal. Uh, we had so many TVs <laughs> in every office. Yeah. Um, and every customer loved them. They love walking around the office and seeing all these pipelines and actually seeing the progress of their teams. You know, even if it is like the automated things and like, commits going through, like they love seeing the physical process of things just like going they felt like it was more alive they could see the progress they're like oh things are moving it's not just a, a bunch of people and without the context of like as an engineer if you're you know uh like a somebody who doesn't understand like what like where individual teams are sitting and what they're working on you can't just look at a group and be like I, I, I don't know what's going on, right? Are these, these people like doing this or that? But the screen kind of helped bridge that gap, um, which uh, was really, really good. I think that some of the organizational things that, you know, when I think about like some of our past engagements, you know, um, one example is, you know, uh, when a large organization has the wrong incentives and it's driving teams to do really like, you know, bad practices, um, until you fix those incentive, incentives, it, it, a problem like that essentially won't get fixed and somebody at the team level couldn't fix that problem. So those are the kind of scenarios that I've seen in, uh, like in some organizations where those are a much bigger leadership heavy thing to fix. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, we, we've seen, we've seen a good transformation just stop dead in its tracks sometimes because facilities people are like two people are not allowed to sit at the same desk yep. yeah. <laughs> and there's been engagements like uh extreme labs and pivotal side that we had to pull out right because we're just like we're not we're not setting this up thing up for success and and that's it right yeah. so yeah okay well let's see if we can get to the current revolution so i, I I'll, I'll try not to prejudice it the chat gpt was released november 30th 2022 mm -hmm. well you know do you have a specific memory of that release and what has been your impression as we're as we're going forward in time here to october um 
So I've, I've always flirted around with the idea. So I was playing around with models a few years before ChatGPT came out. And I was always trying to like solve this problem, right? Like I, as, as an engineer, I noticed myself and the teams around me repeating a lot of patterns. And I'm like, you know, uh, how, having the men mentality of like, if you're not automating yourself out of a job, somebody else is going to do it. <laughs> Right. So constantly looking at it, like I was trying all these natural language solutions and making up my own frameworks. I was just like, oh, I want to like tell a story and have it turn into code and everything else. Right. Um, and that na naturally led me down to models. Um, so I was playing around with a bunch of different models, loading them on the phones and everything else. I never got to the level of like developing my own LLM or anything else. Not, not anywhere close. Right. Um, I did learn enough to know the, the boundaries of the problem, why it's hard and the amount of effort and what to expect out of it, more or less. I think um, uh, the, the word AI just gets thrown around and actually means a bunch of different things. And um, so when, when ChatGPT came out, I was just like, this is the thing I've been thinking about, dreaming about, right? I know it's not gonna be perfect the first time around, but um, it's going to be a huge deal. Um, and it is, it is. Um, it's getting there. I think a lot of people think, or a lot of people looking from the outside in on this industry, they're like, oh, you know, a bunch of people are going to lose their jobs. I'm like, no, it's just going to assist a lot of people in their jobs and help them think through a bunch of things or give them like a second opinion. Um, we're personally using it in a bunch of different ways in our solution. Um, but the most valuable the most valuable part right now is using AI to understand unstructured data and get insights from it. Um, it's almost like a, a next gen OCR. So yeah. that's been very good for us. We're keeping an eye on all the generative stuff. That's where it starts getting a little bit like, okay, there's all these lawsuits and you know, people are starting to reason about it and, and everything else. Um, so we have a few experiments there not exposed to, to customers, but we're keeping a close eye on that and on the development side for, for helping us like reason about code as well. Yeah, so you've got skin in the game here. So what does the industry look like in three years? And I, and I mean the software development industry. I mean, you know, the and I, I often, everyone wants to think about the best, you know, new tech coming out. But software development to me is really done in Fortune 500s, it, you know, 2,000 person organizations. They're producing a lot of software. So what is the, what's the track for the next couple of years for that kind of organization? With AI, I, I think it's it's going to touch so many aspects, um, and it a lot of this stuff is already happening now. It's just not perfect. Um, I, I've I've access to a few pre-released tools on the uh, Google side that um, you can see the progress, but having a AI understand all of your code bases and be like hey, I need to understand how this one function works. And it's like, oh, it actually goes to this. And then that talks to this API and that jumps to this code base and everything else. That's great. Um, how having many, like, how many years, how many years, that's what I call the reverse Borg scenario. Mm -hmm. It's just like, okay, we'll just lay a structure over uh, everything. Right. And then you, you, you come to what Google built from the ground up in Borg, you just 
come from the top down. You just can lay things over it. So when you think about that, how many years out is that for you? Uh, probably another year or two. It's not too far out. Yeah, a year or two. Like, so this industry, which has always, you know, prided itself on moving quickly. You know, I remember when product cycles were a decade and then product cycles became seven and then five and then three. But we're talking about a whole, I mean, you're just like casually talking about a wholesale complete revolution in two years. Oh yeah. For a lot of our doc, our document parsing. Um, so a lot of the models would have a limit on input tokens or characters. Um, and they were limited at like, I think it was, um, you know, ChatGPT GPT has been increasing their limits a lot, but maybe you capped at like, you know, uh, when I was first using the Google stuff is 4k, 4k characters, which means when I have to put in a whole document, I'm like, okay, now I need to do a vector database. I need embeddings. I need to do a search against, you know, either semantics or whatever parameter I want, grab that text bit, put it into a prompt, give it to the model and it's done. And like forward to, that was like a few months, that was like in June or something like that. And forward today, like Google unveils 32K, you know, character Talk input. Now I'm just like, oh, I just got rid of that, my whole tech stack. I'm just putting it directly into the model. And that was over three months, you know, go forward another year. You're going to be able to put in full code bases. You're going to be able to ask questions. Again, it's not going to replace anybody. Yeah, like be perfect at these things. But the amount of acceleration for like, you know, if I had to go through like 10 code bases and figure out how they're all stitched together, that would take me a lot longer probably than if I asked LLM and it kind of helped me, like assisted me through that journey. Um, where I get really excited is this like having an LLM look at like a whole code base, um, especially one that's trade on like, you know, code. It'd be like, how do I refactor? Like if I wanted to refactor it this way or if I wanted to refactor it that way or like, hey, in our roadmap, we're going in this direction. Do you have suggestions on like how to re-architect things? Like giving, like letting the ideas flow and just uh, suggest things in that way to be really, really, really cool. Yeah. So I, so that's an exciting idea. But as soon as you hit that, what you realize you're going to be able to do is say, these 50 code bases, find the databases they access, and then unify the database access across every single one of them, the same exact code block. And if it has to be in a different language, you find you render it in that code block. By the way, instrument that. It all goes here. And you're just going to refactor, like forget about it. Like Facebook seven years ago had six things that they could fix in code bases automatically. And it was like some very, it was very specific PHP stuff mostly. They could find this kind of error that would happen in PHP a lot because they just trained it on the code base of broken stuff, right? And so they could correct these things. But we're not, this, this whole concept of grokking what's going on, we're going to be there for three months. Like, oh, this is really cool. It's like, forget it. You're not, you know, you don't grok, you do, but most people don't even grok how their car works. Like there is basic input and output controls, and that's all anyone is ever going to see. And this is, this is not a surprise, but this excel because we're, you know, I like to think we're a thousand abstractions above the sand, you know, that trickles electrons through it that actually run our universe. We're a thousand or more levels above that. Uh, we just hit like photosynthesis. I, I, I think the AI revolution is as big as fire. And I say that with no at all irony. Like it, 
we're just going to be able to send things out, probes out to the entire solar system. We're going to be able to map every, everything w- with impressions. Oh, the solar wind is particularly nice today. I love this. Flow. Like the robots are just going to be telling us these things. Yeah. So, I, I'm, it's super interesting. We didn't have a direct conversation about like the speed, but the speed to me is the critical thing. And it's so huge. If we, if we tie all of this together, pivots are the trained core of people who are most likely to not be surprised. To be able to follow essentially your temperamental example of no need to freak out. Like we'll solve this problem. But in fact, it only makes sense to, to, to try to solve this problem in a short iteration. Because in, in, in the 90s, part of your engineering model would be this machine is too slow. And, but we know in two years when the growth hits, we'll, we'll be, just be able to buy a bigger machine. So mm-hmm. there was this whole universe where you counted on Intel, literally, and RAM price drops in your engineering model. Th- that fell away. Cert- that fell away by the early two thousands, and cloud, uh, you know, totally obliterated that. Um, but but now the speed, because it, at some point these things are going to turn around and start consuming themselves, and then yeah, then they're just going to map the full embedding space. They're like, oh, uh, like there's this mathematical concept called braid groups, which you can. It's just like braiding hair or bread or anything like that. Braid groups. And basically, braid groups just tell you where stuff can probably occur. And so now the entire embedding space can just be run mathematically. Like, well, it's like AlphaGo. Did you, did you follow that whole thing? Yeah. Right? The people observing it are like, this thing thinks like no human has ever thought about Go. Yeah. And so you could just think of it. It mapped the entire embedding space of Go and explored solutions there. This same two-year thing in the lab is going to mean they are going to turn specialized machines with sensors loose on the entire embedding space to fill it in. Yeah. No, it, it's, it's going to be massive. And I think, like, tangibly for me, when I think about this problem, I'm like, okay, you know, like a, an LLM is going to have access to our whole code base. It's going to tell me how to refactor. It's going to really understand what I'm doing or, you know, what the code is. It's not going to understand my, my intent until I kind of like put it in there. Um, at the point where it can kind of tell me to like, give me suggestions on how to refactor my code. It can also get to the point of how to switch the whole code base. Right. And the huge problem with that is like, you know, I've tried this before is like all the libraries, like libraries never translate. I've had chat GPT and every LLM under the sun recommend horrible, you know, code snippets, but, especially libraries. It's like, hey, use this popular library. It doesn't work or has a bad license and everything else, right? Uh, and those will be problems that will be sorted out over time or you can kind of tune your model to, to do different things. Already sorted. I, I have a friend yeah. who is a very good programmer, he's, but he's a solo guy. And he, yeah. he's now working with the machine alone. He's like, I don't like this Node.js library. And he just had it re-render into whatever language he wanted. Yeah. And... That, that the whole point is the machine will just be able to define your path to production. It's like, yes, give me access to logs, give me access to the code base, and I can tell you what you are doing. I can define the electron path from client to client, right? The entire loop. Yeah. Then you're just like, 
will render me that loop in something that's highly legible and short. Like, <laughs> and that yep. whole in, that entire code base will simply be subsumed by the riding, rising tide. It will just vanish because all we care about is essentially the path that electrons are taking through this thing. Yeah. And th like this is this is the thought pattern that took me down the natural language thing as well. So it's like if it's be able to refactor and, and change code, right? Um, then you get to a point where I, I kind of marry it with the the data that I had with startups after VMware. I helped a whole bunch of people bootstrap their startups. I just wanted to help the people in my network do well. I uh, I uh, had the time I was going to take a year of vacation, but I got you know, restless and I'm like, okay, I'll help people bootstrap and not become full employees, but just help them out. Um, a lot of them start off with node, this node and react. Cause it's like, I need to hire and I need to hire reliably. If I go into like, you know, like rust, people are going to be more expensive. I can't find them, everything else. So like, I'm just going to start off on node and react. Um, and I'll deal with the consequences later. Um, you know, Twitter had this thing too. They all started on Ruby. They needed to make certain things performant. They moved off into other languages and optimized later. When, when I kind of marry the AI thing, the, the startup approach, and then what we did at Cloud Foundry, I'm like, what if everybody's writing in Node and Cloud, like something like the Cloud Application Platform just really knows like, hey, I need to hit this many requests per second. Oh, I'm going to switch that whole code base into Rust. Um, it'll still work. I need to make sure these tests pass and, you know, maybe it'll do a whole bunch of UI tests as well. But even if I had to iterate 20 times before it got to a working copy, it would still be way more cost effective you than could, having a whole team think about that, right? Yeah, you could dump it to a large, to a cloud provider, like spend $25,000 yeah. on getting it refactored. Like, what Easy. do you care, right? Like, yeah. like what <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> right, and then you, do the, then you do the vector embeddings of what it is. Yep. And then you just render it into assembler. Like that's the whole thing is we're going to just go back like just render this in assembler. I, I, who cares? Yeah. And then the, the cloud the cloud providers don't need to support all these different languages and versions and everything else. People are more expressing what they want the machine to do in what, whatever natural way they want. Uh, which I landed in like a natural language thing it was a horrible idea that has to be something <laughs> not YAML, anything but YAML. For anybody who's listening, I don't want to go back down the YAML enterprise thing. Um, but uh, yeah, like you can definitely see the stuff creeping up super quickly. And especially thinking about all the, the application transform projects that we had back in the day, like switching things from uh, like Java to something else or some whatever. Right, you can see AI is... heap Java app. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's a huge team, big project, all these plans. Like I would... If I was one of those executives, I would pay an LLM or whatever solution to just hammer on that for like a month, get to a good outcome that satisfies all of our uh, needs. And again, it's not going to get it right the, the first time. But when you think about the cost and the mindshare and what people could be working on in terms of newer and net new initiatives for customers and outcomes versus kind of refactoring and changing something that's already there. Um, it's almost like a it's a it's a no brainer, like if whoever creates that or Whenever somebody uh, creates that, it's going to happen within uh, a very short time. Like people will jump on that, no problem. Yeah. It'd be a huge time savings, All cost right. savings. So, so jump out. You started on Cloud Foundry in you were on in two thousand twelve, two thousand thirteen. 
2013. Yeah, 2013. October. So, ten years ago, we did Cloud Foundry essentially, and it was it was a pioneering effort, right? There wasn't there wasn't a market for it. We went out and did it. Um, and we can look back, and there's nothing except for Kubernetes. There's nothing really shocking. Kubernetes to me is a distraction. Like I, I get I get that it's a cool piece of tech, but it, it's not actually a business piece of tech. Mm -hmm. All right, ten years out from now, 2033. What do you see? Um, yeah, it's interesting. I've seen people try to move away from the, the cloud foundry kind of aspect, uh, mostly because like support is uh, getting a little scarce out there these days. Um, and they just crave it, right? Like anything that kind of puts, puts your like your business intents at the interface and deals with the rest for you. People just love that, right? They'll they'll eat that up all day, every day. Um, I just do think that the abstraction layer of intent, like for for Cloud Foundry, it was code, which is perfect, right? Like here's my code, here's my intent. I just need you to run it. Okay, wait. I, w I want you to break down the abstraction layer of intent. So give give us a technical definition of how you think about that. Um. Essentially, in like when we're pushing something to a Cloud Foundry or just writing code in general, we're saying like, hey, we want to be able to talk to these inputs this way. It could be the customer, it could be an API or anything else. We have this logic of how we want to reason about those inputs, and then we want to give essentially responses or do something. I think the way we express that intent to a system is going to become a lot more accessible to people. So you don't have to learn Go and the whole syntax and everything else. Again, like people are, they, they gravitate to a JavaScript because it's a lot less strict than other things, right? Um, I think that is going to become a lot more accessible to people and the complexity at the other side of what happens, again, with like AI transformations and everything else, it's going to become way, way, way more complex. I do agree with you with like with Kubernetes. I feel like that's almost, that's a step backwards and you can talk to a lot of you know, Cloud Foundry customers. They also feel like that's a, they they really love that that interface. I think that'll come back. The industry will will wise up to that, come back and build those abstraction layers on top of it again. The more opinionated stuff, um, it, it's it's just a matter of time, right? It, I, I think it's it's literally the way we we evolve solutions as the human species is to uh, get closer to just capturing people's intent and just making the process as easy as possible. Yeah, right? the elimination of toil, the, exp the, the ultra expressiveness. Yeah, I think anything that, uh, I, I always use Amazon as the prime example. And, and I, I don't think this is always like a, a good outcome for, for humanity because some of it leads into like human behavior and some people try to exploit it. Uh, but Amazon like really lent into something, like somebody wants a product, we are going to get them get it to them as soon as possible, no matter what the cost. And the human convenience will win out at the end of the day. And I think that's what Cloud Foundry did for folks, right? I don't have to think about the container networking of it or anything else. Um, I just said like, hey, I have this application, I want to run it. It can talk to the other application. I need to access another API. We would do all the internal networking. Um, that interface is very valuable to folks. Yeah. Okay, so 10 years out, you see just essentially expression of intent. And so what do you see for the stack, right? So 
we'll just take a totally classic example. In a lot of places, there is a product organization. It doesn't look like the pivotal product organizations, but it's like product, like, hey, cl clients need this. Are, are they going to be the only ones employed at that point? No, no. I, 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 there will always be... Um, I, I think um, you'll find people are just working on net new architectures and ideas versus being stuck in toil, right? I, I was talking to a friend um, who said uh, uh, one of his teams, or not one of his teams, another team in their organization, um, they spent a year switching their code base from uh, Ruby to Rust. Um, at the end of the year, um, it turns out that Ruby got so much better throughout that one year that they actually gained nothing from it. Yeah, right? I, yeah, in, yeah. In 2023, I don't think you can recommend a rewrite on any basis at all. Yeah. So it's like it's it's one of those things where it's like, well, if an LLM was there, they'd probably like, try it out a whole bunch of different times, try it a bunch of different languages, give you the benchmarks, and just give you a suggestion of what to do. And while that for that whole year, that whole team could have been like, what about new customers? What about new experiences? How do we drive that forward? Right. And there'll be other AI tools to help with that process. But like having people um, yeah, just removing toil for people in general. Right. I think even when we look at like just the basics of everyday life that we take for granted these days, right. Like proper plumbing, <laughs> Uh, you go back long enough, like people had to worry about, you know, plumbing. What are we going to do about it? How are we getting water? That was part of the daily routine. Now we have a lot more time to focus on other things, right? Um, hopefully not TikTok too much for, for folks. I don't, I don't do TikTok, but like I, I, I sometimes look around at like uh, some of the tech around us and I'm like, yeah, I'm happy I don't have to worry about that stuff. I can focus on, you know, businesses, moving things forward and helping people out and uh, spending more time with folks. Well, I, I, I trust that this revolution is going to deliver something like that, too. Uh, and I, I do hope it doesn't go the, the TikTok route. You know, we, I think we probably had long discussions on my beliefs about social media and the, uh, the influence. We, we will save that one for another time. Yeah. Uh, we've been going for uh, you know, an hour and 40 minutes. Great conversation, Dwayne. Uh, this is a great place to wrap. Any, any final things that you want to tell our audience? Um, I, I think, oh, parting words, always so tough. I, I, I truly believe that having strong opinions loosely held, I, I think if there was one thing that I've always worked on and appreciated for the people, like the people around me when we're working on problems, um, just constantly working on that, right? Yep. Um, because for different personality types, you have to approach that in different ways. And that's, that's a skill on its own. Maybe and we'll it's the, it. by far the best skill you could have by All far. Right. We'll, we'll do so. a separate discussion on that. All right. G give us the plug for mantle. Oh, I mean, yeah. Go to with mantle.com. Um, you know, uh, we're here to really just help out 
founders, businesses, operators, just so that we can automate all that stuff away and have them just focus on their business more. Um, right. All the people work in toil. And so. if you're a pivot and you're in an equity situation, tell them about Mantle for freeze. <laughs> yeah. For now. <laughs> yep. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining Radio Free XP today. Today is October 4th. Our guest has been Dwayne Ford. Dwayne, thanks so much for coming on. And, you know, uh, I, I hope that you'll be a, a regular guest. I love talking to you about your point of view and, and just how you think about things. No, thanks for having me. And I'm happy to come back anytime. I love it. I love all of our conversations. Perfect. We'll talk to you next time. Take it easy. Thank you for listening to this episode of Radio Free XP. If you're interested in helping with graphics, bumper music, or other aspects of production, or if you'd like to be on the show, please contact Jesse Alford or Tony Hansman on the Pivotal Alum Slack. You can also reach us via email at jesse.alford at pm.me or precept at gmail.com, respectively.